Okay, hello everyone. My name is Stephen Lott. I'm the Senior Lead of Communications for the McMaster Health Forum, and I'm part of the Secretariat for the Evidence Commission. Welcome to day two of Engaging Evidence 2021, and thanks to Cochrane Australia, JBI, GRADE, and GIN who are jointly hosting this conference. I'm pleased to open today's session, system, Systematizing Best Evidence Use in Routine Times and to Address Future Global Crises. This session draws learnings from the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges. Please use the chat to ask questions or share comments during the presentations. We are recording today's session and we'll be making it available on the Evidence Commission site for those not able to join. Lastly, if you have any feedback after today's event, please email us at evidencecommission@master.ca. I'd now like to turn the session over to our host, Jen Thornhill Verma, the Executive Lead of the Evidence Commission Secretariat. Jen? Thanks so much, Steve, and thanks everybody for joining. I'm hosting today from the traditional territory of the Algonquin people here in Ottawa, which is Canada's capital. It straddles the border between what is now Quebec and Ontario. As I introduce our speakers, I'll ask them to offer a word about their hopes for the work that we're embarking on with the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges. I'm gonna introduce them in their order of appearance and as uh, I'll actually pop up our session objectives here as well so you can have a look at those. As I'm introducing, I'd, I'd welcome you to do the same. Introduce yourself, tell us where you're joining from, if you have any questions for today's panelists or for us at the Evidence Commission, we will try to take your questions as they come in today. So first up, we have Andrew Lee, one of our commissioners of the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges. He's the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities and Federal Member for Fenner in Australia. Before being elected to government a decade ago, Andrew was a professor of economics at the Australian National University. He's a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences, a past recipient of the Young Economist Award, He's a podcast host, a book author, and seems to be pumping out a, a book a year, it looks like, Andrew, um, including one just this week called What's the Worst That Could Happen? Existential Risk and Extreme Politics. So Andrew, thanks for being here. Tell us, what are your hopes for our agenda with the Evidence Commission? Jen, uh, thanks very much for having me along. I, I too am joining you from traditional lands, in my case, the, uh, the lands of the Ngunnawal people here in Canberra. So I acknowledge elders past and present. Uh, I uh, really want this commission to give us a little bit more modesty about what we know and don't know. Uh, too often, I think policymakers imagine that there is one single answer out there that's, uh, that's known. Uh, I'd like to see a little bit more modesty and experimentation as we search for the right answers. Uh, and then raising the bar on what constitutes good evidence. It's been a real privilege with me to work to, with such a diverse and interesting team and, and looking forward to uh, talking about some of the uh, report's findings. Fantastic, thank you so much. Next up, we have Julian Elliott, another commissioner with the Evidence Commission and is truly the world's leading clinician researcher in the use of technology for evidence synthesis. He chairs the Australian Living Evidence Consortium based at Cochrane Australia within Monash University School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine. And until recently, I understand was the executive director of the Australian National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force. Julian developed the Living Evidence Model, which of course we'll talk about today and is now adopted worldwide, including by the World Health Organization and several guideline groups. He, um, also is the founder, co-founder and CEO of Covidence, a nonprofit technology platform that provides the most widely used software platform 
for systematic review globally. He too is decorated for his work, the 2017 recipient of the Australian Health Minister's Award for Excellence in Health and Medical Research. And when he's not doing all of that, I understand you're still an infectious diseases physician at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. So Julian, thank you too for being here and for being a commissioner. What are your hopes for our agenda with the Evidence Commission? Thanks, Jen. Again, um, thank you very much um, for inviting me to come and join the discussions today and, and for being part of the Commission. Um, I also am on traditional lands here in Melbourne of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, so I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I um, Look, I think I've, I've talked about this time as a bit of a, like a window of disruption. Um, as the saying goes, in every crisis there's an opportunity and I think through the pandemic, we've seen a very broad understanding in the general community and policymakers about the role that science can play in the way that society functions. Um, so I think we do truly have a window of opportunity. And um, I think the Commission can make a major um, contribution towards grasping that opportunity um, and looking at what has worked well during this period of, of stress testing um, that we've seen during the pandemic. Um, but of, of course, also, you know, where the weaknesses are in our systems and moving quickly to address those. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And finally, we have Divina Girsi, our discussant today, is Senior Principal Research Scientist at Australia's National Health and Medical Research, Sci uh, Research Council, where she provides practical advice and methodological support to those engaged in the creation, evaluation, synthesis, translation of research evidence, including systematic reviews, clinical trials, clinical practice, and public health guidelines. She's an adjunct professor at Sydney Medical School, understands spent time at the WHO as well. Davina, thank you for being here today and starting to wrap your head around our effort with the Global Commission on Evidence to address societal challenges. Based on what you've learned so far, what would you like to see come from this effort? Uh, thank you, Jen. Uh, like Andrew, I'm on Ngunnawal country and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians. Uh, I've only, I've not had long to look at what has been quite an, in, a, an impressive body of work. Um, I agree with Julian that there, um, the, the timing I think is right. There's been so much happening and especially in Australia during COVID with um, the way governments have embraced evidence and science to some extent and that uh, it's an opportunity to leverage and I'm hoping that this commission might be a framework to support researchers and decision makers in how to do that and provide some an ambitious vision. Thank you we appreciate that and we'll look forward to uh, garnering more of your advice throughout today's call. So you see our objectives. I'm gonna start with, I promise this isn't an eye test. It's actually gonna be a useful slide for future. And it's to reference that each of the slides that follow does have an exhibit number. So as you're viewing today's session, if there's one that piques your interest, you can easily jot down the number. You can head to our website at evidencecommission.org. It's hosted on the McMaster Health Forum's family of websites. And there you can actually get a copy of the PowerPoint deck that you're seeing today, as well as a PDF version that is an extended version of these exhibits. This also just gives you a quick navigation tool of what to expect when it comes to the Evidence Commission's forthcoming report. So I'll dive in. I wanted to start by sharing who we are. 
And I'm skipping over the details of the Secretariat, but I will recognize our scientific co-leads who couldn't be here today, John Levis, Jeremy Grimshaw, who if you ask me questions that I'm not gonna be able to answer, I guarantee I'm gonna send them a quick WhatsApp <laughs> to do my best to answer it. But otherwise, we're so happy to bring together a group of commissioners and I'll actually just show you who they are in this next slide. But they bring diverse points of view to creating a report that really speaks to many different types of people who make or can influence decisions about whether and how evidence is used to address societal challenges. And we think that they reflect the diversity of our audience. So, you know, those who produce evidence, those who are intermediaries and, and those who are decision makers, be they citizens, government policymakers, professionals and organizational leaders. They also cover all of the sustainable development goals. And, and one of our goals is to inoculate people to the idea that as much as this effort is learning from COVID-19, we believe that this work holds great relevance for a broad many societal challenges. Uh, I should also mention that they also bring a great deal of experience to the different types of evidence that we talk about with the Evidence Commission. Our work of the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges, it builds on existing commissions in, in several ways. And I'll just highlight three in particular because we spend a great deal of time talking about societal challenges, decision-making and evidence. And so of course you all will be aware that in May, the Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness and Response tabled its report. And that commission report, like many, focus on a single category of challenges. In our case, we're trying to prepare for different types of societal challenges. So taking a holistic perspective in that regard. In the same way, many commission reports focus on a single category of decision makers. So the example we've used here and we will build upon their work is the commission that occurred under the Obama administration in the United States, the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking that particularly looked at the use of evidence in, in government and federal government in particular. Here, we're looking at a broad range of decision makers and I'll talk about those specifically, but, but citizens, for example, have been instrumental in the COVID-19 response as much as government policymakers and business leaders and others. And then finally, evidence. There was a report that was tabled also back in May, June, the G7 Science Academies released a report looking at data to prepare for future health emergencies and data arguably has gotten a lot of play during the pandemic, potentially at the expense of other forms of evidence which are quite useful in decision making. And so here when we say evidence, we really mean research evidence and you'll see in the upcoming slides that we're taking a holistic perspective thinking about challenges, decisions, decision making and evidence. I want to mention briefly our connection to the COVID-19 network to support decision-making. And it's a partnership of a number of um, partners that work in the evidence production area, be it from synthesis, technology assessment, guidelines, and so forth. And in the same way that this group came together to support evidence creation and dissemination during the pandemic, it was also this group that said, you know, in the same way, couldn't we use a similar machinery for other societal challenges ahead, be it in routine times or to address future global crises. And this just gives you a quick view of the number of partners that currently inform the COVID and COVID-19 evidence network to support decision makers. I wanna dive in and just give you a quick overview of challenges, evidence and decisions. And I'm gonna come right back to Andrew to get things going. 
in some ways, when we think about societal challenges, it defies any kind of simple categorization. And so you see, we, we haven't landed a simple categorization, but I'll just show you that quick uh, view of the top row to give you a sense of what we mean by societal challenges. And so some challenges are conducive to taking a country level sectoral response, health systems failing to improve health outcomes and care experiences being a good example. Um, others require a within country context cross sectoral action. If you think about something like antimicrobial resistance or uh, addressing lack of trust in institutions and still others require a global level response as we've seen with, with COVID-19. Um, and mostly our goal with this particular exhibit or visual is to, as I said earlier, inoculate people to the idea that this is about more than the pandemic. We're gonna learn a lot from the stress testing that Julian described that's happened during the course of the pandemic in terms of curating best evidence for decision-making. But we think that these lessons hold greater uh, value and potential when we think broadly about the challenges ahead. Decision-makers, I'd mentioned, this is the full roster of who we believe informs the response to societal challenges like the COVID-19 pandemic and others ahead. And then I wanna just spend a little bit of time on what we mean by research evidence. And we know that, that people certainly make decisions for reasons not captured here. And I think the most obvious example is making a decision based on one's own lived experience. And that's crucially important. But what we really wanted to focus on are the types of evidence that are particularly conducive to supporting decision-making. And so I think many of the folks who are coming here from engaging evidence um, will come from guidelines, uh, synthesis, for example, potentially technology assessment. And you know, with the commission, we're really looking at a range of research evidence and recognizing that some forms of evidence will be more instrumental in addressing some decision-making questions and context like data analytics, helping to really elucidate the magnitude of a problem, whereas qualitative studies may be able to shine a light on stakeholders' views and experiences. So very quick overview of the commission. Um, I'll just pause for a moment. And Steve, I wonder, I can't see the chat. So do you mind if there's, if there's a question that comes in, feel free to, to interrupt and, and, and let me know, but. Um, oh, sure, no problem, yeah. Jen. There's no questions at this point, okay. but I'll let you know. Okay, perfect, great. Okay, so Andrew, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come to you now, but I just want to set up this particular slide for folks that, in the context of the commission, we talk about best evidence as, as synthesizing all that is known really about a particular question. And you know, sometimes in the decision-making context, you don't have the luxury of having best evidence. So we talk about those other things that might run by your desk or be put in front of you to offer you some level of evidence. And frankly, some of it is not gonna be particularly helpful, uh, but you have to make decisions anyway. When we produce this particular exhibit, and I should say it's an abbreviated version of the more lengthy exhibit, which is on our website, it seemed to particularly resonate with you. Why? Jen, it reflected to me the notion that very often the alternative to uh, high quality evidence isn't low quality evidence. It's uh, listening to the highest paid person's opinion, uh, the hippo effect, or the good old boys sitting around a table, gobstat. Uh, and the risk of, uh, of that is that uh, you will get decisions that are driven too strongly by people's priors, 
and not enough by a, a good evaluation of, of what's around. This isn't because the, uh, the actors are necessarily uh, motivated by ill intentions. It's simply that understanding evidence is hard uh, and people aren't necessarily trained to uh, know that there is uh, a hierarchy of evidence that in many cases, if you're looking at medical questions, randomised trials will be much more useful than observational studies as hydroxychloroquine has uh, shown us very clearly. Uh, and also that there are such things as evidence syntheses, uh, which draw together the whole body of evidence. Humans are storytelling creatures. And I think we quite like single studies because there's a story in the single studies, uh, but that can be uh, a little bit alluring and lead us away from taking the bird's eye view and really bringing together all of the evidence by looking at an evidence synthesis. And what Cochrane and Campbell have done across a whole host of fields is to produce great evidence syntheses. Uh, and my main uh, task often with colleagues is just to say, uh, don't, uh, don't read anything apart until you've read the best evidence synthesis in the field. I'm curious to know, Andrew, because you spent time in, in the academic world and of course now a decade as an elected official, I'm curious if you find yourself in a translational role or, or helping to provide some um, advice or uh, on what constitutes best evidence. It, do, you, do you find yourself in that position uh, at all? Absolutely. Uh, politics is the world of power, academics, academia is the world of ideas. Uh, and uh, I do my best to act as a transmission belt between the two, uh, going along to academic conferences where I can to be available, uh, taking academic studies from uh, former colleagues and uh, putting them in touch with parliamentarians. Uh, and my parliamentary colleagues are enthusiastic about doing that and, and not just on, on my side of the parliament. Uh, there is a, an admiration for people who have devoted their lives to studying care questions carefully uh, and a desire to get things right. But there's not necessarily the training to understand how best to use evidence. Uh, you, uh, you look, for example, at uh, the example, uh, at the case of bed nets in Africa. Uh, for a long time, there was a, a view that uh, co-payments were important, that people wouldn't put bed nets over themselves and their kids unless they paid something for them. Uh, and the alternative view was if you gave them free, then you'd get higher distribution rates. But it took a handful of randomised trials drawn together in a careful synthesis to show that free distribution of bed nets was actually much more, much more effective in saving lives from malaria. Uh, and uh, that's resulted in free bed nets being rolled out across Africa. My favourite example of a, a randomised policy trial saving thousands of lives. What would you say, and bearing in mind that I, I think the large majority of our audience are coming from, from a researcher perspective, you know, what really, in your view, has helped to increase the chances that the best evidence is considered and, and used? COVID has been important. It's, uh, we've seen uh, deference to, uh, to experts uh, among governments of, uh, of most political stripes. Uh, and that's been, I, I think, a healthy thing. And, and there's been some positive spillover of that into climate where the tradition of recognising the, uh, the wisdom of experts hasn't been as strong. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's encouraging, but we've still got a long way to go. Uh, governments as evidence creators is something that uh, I really admire about the way in which we're shaping up our report. Uh, not simply saying that uh, 
all the all, all, all the answers are out there. Governments simply have to look harder. Uh, but saying that if government is rolling out a new program, sometimes we really won't know whether or not it works. Uh, and so that's why it's important to take a leaf out of the uh, book of the Mexican government when they rolled out conditional cash transfers through Progressa. Uh, and uh, they simply, rather than rolling it out in an ad hoc manner across uh, villages, they randomly so, uh, broke the villages into two groups. One got in the first year, one got in the second year, uh, and then they had a, an experiment that showed them rigorously in the first year the impact of conditional cash, tra cash transfers. And that program is now not only solid in Mexico, but rolled out in nearly 30 developing countries around the world. So I'd love it if uh, more uh, advanced countries were taking a leaf for the Mexican government's book and doing randomised trials themselves. Jen, I'm just... Oh, oh, yeah, sure. Go sorry, ahead. I'm just going to jump in because there's a couple yeah. of questions in chat here. Perfect. So uh, they're related to this, uh, you know, okay. this slide here. So Faras asks, uh, where does tacit knowledge fall in that diagram? And then uh, Ellie uh, has a bit of a commentary and question, says the hierarchy of evidence has been challenged a bit during COVID-19. So that a supposedly well-designed, high-powered RCT may not provide the evidence needed for a decision, for example, mask wearing in the general community. So what do you do then? Uh, and similarly, a lot of complex interventions in public health can't be tested through RCTs. In fact, the best evidence we usually have comes from well-done natural experiments, e.g. interrupted time series analyses. The evidence hierarchy doesn't really engage with this at all. I don't know if any of our panelists want to respond to that last point. I'll just say on the tacit knowledge, I did want to make clear that when it comes to how we conceive of evidence, you know, we've really focused on research evidence that's useful in decision making, but not to the exclusion of, you know, recognizing how people make decisions often based on their own lived experience. And so you do see throughout the Global Commission on Evidence to Address Societal Challenges, discussion around how, you know, how citizens interact and use evidence, for example, or how, or how any of us do that, all, all the different types of decision makers that we factor in. But we've, we've tried to, in this particular chapter, prioritize looking at use of research evidence and where it's particularly instrumental to address common decision-making questions um, you know, be it related to understanding the magnitude of a problem, deciphering options, um, monitoring the effect of having selected a particular approach and, and so forth. Um, so you do see it throughout the report, but in a, in a certainly nuanced way. Otherwise, um, any, any responses to the, the commentary we had, I think from Elliot was? Jen, can... okay, you had to be. Um, I think the hierarchy of evidence um, has evolved since it first came into being and acknowledgement, uh, particularly with frameworks like grade and sort of evidence to decision type frameworks, that the evidence um, is one element. What you need to do is apply judgment to a body of evidence um, and the best evidence for the question that you're asking. So I'm not sure that referring to the hierarchy of evidence is... Uh, has the same meaning as it did 10 years ago when it was first sort of came into being. Um, yeah, and my, look, my reflections is through, through the pandemic, um, we've obviously had an incredible amount of research um, and that's contributed, of course, to the responses that we've had so far. But I think it is certainly true that there has been a skew towards um, drug um, research um, and if you look at the total amount of funding and availability of high quality evidence in non-drug interventions, 
So for example, mask wearing, um, you know, there, it really has been underdone. Uh, in the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, we were asked to look at healthcare worker um, PPE, so including masks and eye protection. Um, and this was about a year into the pandemic. And, um, you know, of course, did all the usual rigorous processes to identify evidence. And, um, you know, really, it was an absolute travesty, the, the lack of the lack of high quality evidence that we had at that time. It is, of course, in many of these situations, as the um, as I think Ellen noted, you know, extremely complex and difficult to accrue high quality evidence in some of these um, uh, public health questions, but it's certainly not impossible. Um, and I think I just link this to another reflection, which is that, you know, when we have really strong partnerships and systems in place before a crisis, then we can really utilize that and generate very high quality evidence. Um, so I think one great example are, are platform trials, which have, which have been used for clinical interventions, which are, you know, an existing infrastructure, which um, is persistent over time and, and um, particular interventions can be inserted into that infrastructure in a very dynamic and quick way. So I think through the pandemic, we've really seen how um, that platform trial infrastructure established pre-pandemic really came to the fore. And I think similarly for public health interventions, I think this really is one of the key learnings that we can do more to establish an infrastructure which can then generate high quality evidence um, during that period of crisis, whatever the next crisis might be. And let's predict it's probably not gonna be a pandemic and maybe some other global health crisis. So just noting, um, Paul Glazio and others are leading a group called VESI, um, which is, is, is really, I think, doing great work in highlighting the incredible importance of non-drug interventional questions in addressing global health challenges. And I think we really do need to pay more attention to that. Um, thank you so much, Julian and Davina. And uh, Andrew, I know we're gonna lose you any moment. So I wanna try to just get in one last question with you given that you, you just released your book and in it you talk about a certain type of extreme politics that really fails to be motivated by long-term planning and strategizing and, and very likely sees research evidence as, as elitist. And I, I wonder, can you give us some insights from that book that's relevant to today's discussion? Thanks, Jen. Uh, what's the worst that can happen focuses on things that could end the world, uh, a uh, catastrophic pandemic, nuclear war, artificial intelligence gone, gone wrong and, uh, and the like. Uh, and one of the things it focuses on is the way in which those problems are all worsened by the rise of populist politicians. Populists are anti-intellectual, they're anti-institutional, uh, they're anti-international. And they try and engender a sense of outrage and anger rather than calm and focus. These aren't bugs, they're features of populism. They are inherent to the way in which populists operate. But all of those things make it harder for us to deal with long-term challenges that require looking to science for answers, approaching questions calmly with reason, uh, working together as countries, and using strong uh, institutions to tackle these challenges. And so in the case of, uh, of evidence, I think it's not surprising that as being populists that have touted unproven cures to COVID, uh, that have doubted the science on climate change, because that's one way in which populists have sought to build a base of support. 
so tackling populist politics and and that's populism on on both sides of the political spectrum is going to be important as we look to better use evidence uh, and build a world which is more more based on strong science strong institutions calm reason uh, and international cooperation jen i'll stay on the conversation for as for as long as i can but okay. uh, if i have to drop off um, thank you to you and uh, all the participants for uh, for being in being in touch uh, if people want to contact me directly uh, Aussie should always feel free to do that fantastic thank you so much I'm going to transition slides here and Julian I'm going to uh, pick up the conversation actually where we just left it off and I want to tell you that Paul Glasgow just gave you a shout out on Twitter for okay. referencing <laughs> the imbalance between COVID-19 research on drugs compared to non-drug interventions as documented on the scorecard at Bessie dash collab.net um and so yeah. i wanted to share no. oh yeah sorry can i just interrupt i yeah. um if i can railroad for just one moment um sure. <laughs> andrew i think what you're talking about is so so um so important and so true do you mind jen if i just ask andrew go for it and so yeah. listeners know we said we said we wanted this to be informal so i'm going to stop share just for a minute so you guys can see each other <laughs> Um, how do you think we do that? How we, we of course are seeing the rise of, of populism across the world. So it, and I, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you that this is a very significant and profound challenge to the way that um, science can be used in our society. So how do we, how do we address that? So Julian, my theory of the rise of populism is it's to do with jobs, snobs, race, pace, and luck. Uh, we can't do much about the fact that uh, so we've had the populists have had luck on their side uh, that uh, Trump is a better better campaigner than some of the populists that preceded him, but we can do more to create jobs to make sure that there is uh, a strong middle class in advanced countries and that those formerly manufacturing voters don't turn to populists. Um, we can make sure that we're not snobbish in our education system, that there's an education system that delivers for the most vulnerable, uh, rather than ploughing all of its resources into kids of the most affluent, as some systems risk doing. Uh, we need to be sensitive around uh, deb debates over race. Uh, yeah, the Virginia governor's race, in some sense, came down to uh, a populist uh, weaponizing the uh, the teaching of critical race theory and uh, progressives need to get better in, in how we talk about race in a way that engages a broad swath of, uh, of the community. Uh, and pace is a recognition that many people turn to populists from that sense that the world is moving too fast and I want to get off. Populists offer a, a, a return to a halcyon day, which of course they can't deliver. Uh, but talking more about traditions, national identity, uh, about the uh, stability of the world, I think is, uh, is an important part of the communication challenge for uh, people like me. I don't have all the answers, but for me, it's the, it's the number one question, because I think unless we get the politics right, then a lot of the policy uh, founders. Wonderful. Sorry, Jen. There were just, no. I, I, I really had to pursue that. I think that is <laughs> absolutely resonates very strongly. It. Yes, I felt so too. And uh, I, I've started reading the book, um, Andrew. So I'm gonna I'm gonna toggle back to the conversation and just mention that we were we were talking about evidence synthesis as really this optimal form of evidence, but we we dug into as part of the Global Commission on Evidence to address societal challenges the coverage and quality and recency of syntheses 
as it related to the sustainable development goals and also as it related to COVID-19. And, and you can read about the full methodology and approach that was taken in the PDF version of this particular exhibit, but we really analyzed to what we call one-stop shops for evidence syntheses, one that focused on all the, on the non-health sustainable development goals, and then also another that uh, looked at COVID-19. So it was the social systems evidence database and then the COVID end inventory and the larger database from which it's, it's drawn. And so you can see the, the results here on the SDGs that coverage was uneven, quality was uneven, all the SDGs had a medium year of last search that's five or six years ago. Only between one in 10 and one in 20 evidence syntheses about most SDGs included at least one study from a low and middle income country. And then similarly, oh, on COVID-19, coverage was uneven, quality was uneven. Three of the four COVID-19 response categories have a median date of last search that's within four and a half months. And so Julian, this is a big question. I'm not asking you to take responsibility for it, but can you just help to relay what, what, what do you think is going on there and, and how do we remedy those coverage and quality and recency issues? No, thanks, Jen. I'll make a couple of comments then. I'm, I'm very interested in Davina, I'm sure, also has additional thoughts and perhaps Andrew as well. I think, um, you know, we have to think of where evidence started and where it's been strongest. Um, and I, I think also recognise the fact that you know, some of the evidence systems within health have really been established essentially around the, the regulation and funding of drugs. Um, and so that, that system that was established, you know, in order to protect human health in a very direct way has really um, had some like um, tailwinds behind it that has enabled us to become very well established. But of course, um, we're well beyond that now. Um, you know, this approach that we call evidence um, has been going on for some time. And I think the fact that we don't see as great a strength in some of these non-health areas, um, you know, is, is um, something that many, many people have been trying to tackle for a very long time, but we're still very far behind as, as these figures show. I, I'm quite interested in the role that um, UN, agencies beyond WHO might play in trying to shift this, particularly in this kind of window coming out of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, Davina's worked within the UN system. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this, but I think it is, you know, although we know there are, there are challenges in the way that evidence and, and guidance has kind of evolved within WHO, it, it does, I think, have a strong culture and practice around evidence and using evidence in the best possible way in, it, in its kind of normative um, statements and documents. And that culture is not as strong in other UN agencies. And perhaps there's an opportunity coming out of the pandemic to be make, making some very clear statements um, regarding that as a way of trying to perhaps catalyze a, a, a greater shift in the use of evidence in those other areas. Davina or Andrew, if you care to weigh in. Also okay if you don't. <laughs> I, th I think um, it's to some degree a mat matter of a practice of questioning what you do and making sure you ask the right questions. And in health, I think, um, especially since uh, Cochrane and systematic reviews in the early 90s started to become more popular and common, um, 
that focus on asking the right question and asking an answerable question has evolved. And I don't know that in, um, in other areas that ability to question and maybe challenge thinking and then look for the evidence to support <laughs> um, your thinking um, in a systematic way is perhaps there. I mean, Campbell has made his staff, I, I'm not sure how um, uh, entrenched uh, some of the Campbell uh, network is in Australia, for example. Um, I, I was going to come to this later on, but I'm thinking of how relationships are formed between decision makers and policy makers and the people who understand and synthesise the evidence. So we can come back to that later, but I'm the potential is there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to toggle ahead, uh, but Andrew, if you do want to come in, feel free to to go for it. I'm uh, I'm happy to let it roll. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> I, I wanted to, um, of course, I had to talk to Julian about living evidence products, mm -hmm. and four four of the forms in which evidence is typically encountered by decision makers, as we were describing, eight forms earlier. So four of them are now available as living evidence products, regularly updated as new data is added. And many examples of these arose as part of the COVID-19 evidence response. And so, you know, I'm curious to know if there's become a bit of an expectation um, in your experience on, on those who rely on these sources of evidence of that level of, of, of updating. Um, and also curious what you see as the role of living evidence products in, in addressing the, the global challenges ahead? Yeah, thanks, Jen. I think that's a great question, actually. Um, so I, I think at this point, of course, you know, the whole approach of living systematic reviews and living guidelines has, has got some considerable momentum during the pandemic. And we've seen that now being adopted by WHO, by um, uh, NICE in the UK and many other groups, um, including groups here in Australia. Um, I think that we have to be um, cognizant of the potential um, dangers or unintended consequences. So I think, first of all, you know, like any um, kind of initiative like this, it can start to become a bit of a buzzword um, that is perhaps um, misunderstood. And one of the things we're trying to emphasise at the moment is that, you know, living guidelines are not living opinion, that the absolute foundation for any form of living guideline is, is grade methodology. And so I think, you know, really trying to reinforce that point every single time we're talking about living evidence in the context of evidence and guidelines, I think is critically important because I imagine many groups who are not yet doing grade will try to jump onto this as the kind of the new thing um, sort of bypassing the, their adoption of grade methodology, and that's clearly a, a mistake. So making that transition to grade, I think, is, is the foundation. Um, I think also, again, we've been very clear that living approach is not um, necessarily appropriate for all questions. Um, and so in a particular circumstance, it really is about what is the need of stakeholders, of end users. And so in, in the context of the COVID pandemic and clinical guidelines, there was a very, very clear need for clinicians to have forms of guidance and evidence that they could turn to that were both trustworthy and, and, and up to date. And up to date, of course, in this context was kind of 
you know, more frequently updated than we'd ever done before. So updating week every week. Um, but of course, in other contexts for other types of questions for stakeholders, there, there may not be the same um, definition of currency and there may be other needs that are that are just as important. I think just to note, and again, I think Andrew would be aware of this. I wrote a great article recently about in, in economic policy making now the, the um, increasing role of real-time data in informing economic policy making. Whereas previous, you know, you'd wait for the, you know, marketing manager's report or the um, you know, payroll report or whatever it is that would come out every quarter or so, you know, there's economic policy makers now have much greater access to, to real-time data feeds. Um, and I think again in health, we're just we're going to see um, a rise of similar sort of processes. So whether that's data coming directly from health systems in a kind of learning health system type model, but together with, you know, this more dynamic approach to synthesizing evidence and producing guidelines. Yeah, I was just going to say, building on that, uh, there's been a, a growing recognition in economics that our forecasts are uh, pretty terrible and that in fact, we were better to do what's called now casting, uh, to do a, a good job of working out what just happened rather than to try and gaze into a crystal ball. Uh, but it's striking too, that even with the, uh, the big data revolution, there's still a need for estimating causal effects. Uh, Google is doing uh, dozens of randomized trials at any given time, despite the fact that it's sitting on more data than anyone else on the planet. Uh, so having lots of data isn't a substitute, as, as Julian Davina well know, uh, for uh, putting in place a credible comparison group. Um, Jen, can I just riff off that? Oh, I don't know if Davina wants to add. Uh, yeah, just to say, I mean, I mentioned platform trials earlier, but again, I think it's just thinking through, and the, you know, this is, I think there's an analogy here in our evidence systems, you know, it's thinking through really persistent, um, broadly applicable infrastructure that we can really build now in preparation for future crises um, that um, make the um, generation and use of high quality information much easier, much more dynamic, much cheaper. Um, so I think platform trials are a really interesting kind of model for how we can do that in the, in the generation of randomized data in, um, in primary research. And I think there's, there's a lot that we can do in evidence systems to um, uh, push efficiency, um, push down the unit costs, so that we can be, you know, doing those high quality syntheses, but doing it in a way that is, um, we can scale over a much greater um, set of questions and, and keep it up to date with, with research. So that um, I think Andrew, you made a point earlier about, you know, some of this is, it's hard to grapple with, you know, for people who are not um, <laughs> the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the kind of, in the work of evidence, um, it's not necessarily very approachable. Um, and we, we, we need to, you know, continue to work on making that evidence as, as easy to engage with as possible. I just wanted to share this particular exhibit slide briefly, just to say it might be one that will, will pique our listeners' uh, interest. And again, these and many more, there's about 52 exhibits uh, currently uh, developed and, and uh, most of those are available on the evidencecommission.org website. 
but this one particularly delves into what would a national infrastructure look like? And so evidence is something that decision makers can use while researchers, research is something that researchers do. And this particular exhibit, it, it really looks at the evidence that's emerging from the research as, as being ready for prime time can then be drawn into the evidence support and evidence implementation system. And so I'd encourage you to look at the uh, more in-depth version of this particular exhibit. And I, I did wanna ask uh, Julian yourself and, and Davina as well, what, what infrastructure do you think needs to exist to really support evidence synthesis? Um, and you know, draw from, from uh, you have of course country context, but, but global experience as well. So I'd be curious to know what you think is, is needed Vina, perhaps you, do you want to go first? I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily infrastructure that needs to come first. It's about culture and um, I guess attitudes towards evidence and a desire to um, uh, ask the right questions and then look like look for the right evidence to answer, well, not the right evidence, the best evidence to answer those questions. Um, and changing culture is uh, time consuming and challenging and um, you know, it takes time. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Davina, I can ask you a follow-up question that you alluded to earlier. Maybe I'll just phrase it differently because um, you'd started to say you would talk about this in terms of partnership and I'll, I'll stop share now actually. What, what do you think would help increase the chances that the best evidence is used? And, you know, given we do have a predominantly, I think, researcher audience, uh, advice on that, on that front, I think would be particularly helpful. But you had earlier alluded to partnership, collaboration, trust. So when I was looking at um, some of the documents, um, it occurred to me it's very idealistic and ambitious and you know, visionary. I like I like that, but there is a potential danger in setting the bar so high that it's unachievable, and people get a bit anxious and nervous about it and think, well, that's what they think. It's all very academic, but I'm in a real world having to make decisions every day. So how do I do that? And I think the natural I think we forget that um, public servants and politicians are humans <laughs> and they, they need to trust. They need to trust the people they're working with. They need to trust the evidence they may be basing decisions on. And as Julian knows from the task force, you know, people think, oh, the task force, the COVID-19 task force happened overnight. Well, it actually didn't happen overnight. It took many years of persistence and um, communication and forging relationships with people in government um, and, and in the community and, and a lot of relationships, forming partnerships, um, be, becoming trusted by the people who uh, make decisions or need to use evidence. And so when the pandemic happened, there was a relationship that could then be leveraged. I mean, Julian will know more about what actually happened, but I can I can see that over time it took a lot of time, and and politicians and public servants will form relationships with the people that they trust. They may use information, and when they know they can trust that relationship, they will use it again. 
um, if they learn, if, if, they, if something goes wrong, they will not trust that relationship. And I was thinking this morning as I was having a shower about what's a good analogy for what this could look like. And it, it occurred to me, like, let's imagine a theatre production where you've got the actors and actresses on the stage dealing with the media, doing the communicating. You've got the people backstage, maybe the public servants, you know, the head of, head of makeup, the head of costuming. And then you've got the suppliers, the systematic reviewers who might turn up at the back door of the stage. <laughs> Here's my systematic review that tells you which makeup to use or which costume to use. And um, if you leave the box of systematic reviews at the back door, they'll still be there a week later. Nobody's going to use them. Um, you can tell them that the, you know, the people in inside, backstage that they're there, but uh, why would they access it unless there was some way uh, to walk them through what those systematic reviews are or they actually understand what they are. Keeping in mind the way that people can move so quickly um, out of positions within um, government agencies as well. So uh, how, how do you have uh, forge relationships that can uh, transition effectively over time um, so that people hand over? Here's a, here's a a way of looking at evidence that we have developed and we trust, and I'm going to hand it over to the next person who fills this role because it worked for us and it will work for you too. So I think that those relationships, I think there will be a danger if this, uh, if the commission's work you know, gets posted online and people think it's about government and decision makers and funders, that they're the ones that are going to have to change their ways. This is actually about researchers, the people who use evidence or who create and synthesize evidence, forging those relationships so they understand what the decision makers need. Um, and that takes time and it takes a bit of resilience and it takes effort um, to, to forge those relationships and have those conversations. Um, and it also means researchers have to collaborate and form partnerships amongst themselves because you're not going to get hundreds of researchers going to different people and having and forging relationships and having conversations. There will be a few people that are trusted. And so the research community needs to work collaboratively so that they can be trusted as a group. The way Cochrane has trust within um, some sections uh, of government. So, um, that's they were my initial thoughts when I was looking at mm -hmm. this. That it, it's good to be idealistic, but um, it doesn't stop at the documents that have been created. And so I've I've put on the screen for everyone's awareness. It, it gives you the general kind of vicinity of where we're working on key recommendations for which audiences and and also the areas in which um, we're headed toward in terms of tabling our recommendations. And of course, this work is still underway. And the reason that those exhibits exist on the Evidence Commission website is because we are seeking your input. Over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna to continue to take input to enhance the work that's been underway now for the past half a year. But Julian, to um, Davina's point in regard to the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, I mean, she alluded to the fact that you know, it seems as though that just kind of materialized, but there was a lot of groundwork already in place, if I understand correctly. And so can you, can you just speak to that a little bit and maybe um, elaborate on Davina's point there in terms of, you know, that this is, there's a long game here in terms of relationship building. 
Oh, yeah, thanks, Jen. No, I um, Davina, I love the way you frame that. Um, I think that is just just perfect. Um, yeah, of course, the the task we were able to establish the task force very quickly because of all the work that we've been doing, not only in the model and the and the you know we had the the literally the people with experience, but also the relationships that we had with with uh, National Health and Medical Research Council and other parts of government. I think um, I just want to highlight a few of the words that Davina just kept repeating, which was trust, partnerships, relationships. Like again, I think they're absolutely critical, and I would I would just describe those as part of the infrastructure that we have for evidence-informed policy making and is what we also need to continue to build, particularly in reflecting on what's um, what we've learned through the pandemic. Again, I, I quite um, been reflecting on, you know, in the, in the kind of the grade model where you think of, you know, what we're trying to do is bring together um, ev the best evidence we can together with expertise and preferences and values. And so I think that basic kind of paradigm um, applies here in the way that we engage with policymakers. You know, policymakers, I think, um, will look to experts, as Davina said, but I think what we need to do is ensure that we, we from the evidence community are, are bringing that expertise in whatever field it is together with really robust evidence processes that are, you know, and again, of course, I would say, you know, not only using robust methodology, but is also timely, responsive, constantly up to date. So, you know, that if we don't bring those two things together, it's, it's imbalanced, and then we can have a misunderstanding of the role that, that experts can play. But then also together with, when we think about preferences and values, you know, it's a really, it's a deep understanding of of our stakeholders, of our end users. And so this includes policymakers. Where are they? What do they need? And how can we best respond to that? And then, of course, that kind of connection into the wider community, what the wider community needs. And uh, just quickly, yes. uh, so this, I think, builds on what Davina and Julian yes. have already talked about. But uh, Bill Thole just mentioned that building receptor capacity is key. And then he asked, uh, how does this get done with the high churn rate among senior health decision makers, politicians, and public servants? So like I said, I think Davina had already touched on that, but, uh, but a timely question. Mm -hmm. I, I want to uh, just give it in the couple of minutes and then I'll, we can continue this conversation, but I wanna make sure that folks see that we are continuing this particular dialogue at some upcoming events, some past, and you can see the Cochrane Convene session for example, as a recording, but the Global Evidence to Policy Summit is coming up next week. We'll have a presence there. There's a number of other events and you can find all of this by searching our website, signing up for our newsletter. And um, also there are a number of social channels which I've, we've been engaging with you actually during the course of this session. Thank you for retweeting the work. Put the message out there, you know, use this, these exhibits. We, we want to be able to create a report that is shareable and useful and is interactive. So the degree to which um, you can help contribute to that effort, we, we greatly appreciate it. Um, I, I wonder in terms of sort of closing thoughts, uh, you know, shared with folks how to continue this conversation, where would you like to see 
this effort and work go next? And Julian, I'll start with you. We of course have our work cut out for us this next month in, in finalizing our recommendations, finalizing the report and, and issuing the report. Um, an embargoed copy will be available in December and then the uh, final copy in English and actually six languages beginning in 2022. But what would you like to see in terms of the runway and work that we're doing with the commission? And Davina, I'll similarly come back to you. I think for me, it's about, um, again, trying to grab this moment of opportunity. And I think that the kind of key challenge now in there, and there are many, many conversations going on, I think not only in commission, but many other for around, you know, what have we learned? I think really now it is about, um, you know, engaging communities in those discussions. Um, you know, we are, you know, we've, we've got a, a commission and the commission is, um, I think, developing some great kind of, summaries of, of some some of the ways that we can move forward but I think now what we need to do is really you know really build a build a conversation so I think events like this and, and, and getting more awareness and more conversations going and then activities that really engage with kind of stakeholders people who are um, of communities that are ultimately affected by the kind of systems that we're talking about here is kind of the critical um, next piece. Davina, your thoughts? And I know you spoke to this earlier, but um, in terms of where you'd like to see the, the work go next and taking your point around, you know, is it's ambitious? Is it, is it ideal? Is it overly ideal? You know, how do, we, how do we bring it down to earth and make sure that it continues good work that seemingly has already started and helps ramp it up and take it to, to the next level? Well, that's a, <laughs> there's a question. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think persistence for a start. And I, I, and I think uh, maybe uh, from a researcher's perspective, having been in both camps, I think understanding um, the needs of decision makers and communicating with those decision makers more. And I mean that in a two-way dialogue, not a just pushing information, but really try and trying to understand the framework within a decision maker, within which a decision maker is working. So for example, with NHMRC, we have governance uh, systems in place. We have legislation and regulations that dictate what we can and can't do. So when trying to understand the context within, a decision, within which a decision maker is working, and understanding their needs and then working with them rather than um, against them, I think uh, will encourage people to be using evidence more consistently. And I think um, one of the challenges I think is communicating um, effectively and communicating risk effectively and the community understanding that evidence changes and risk changes over time. Uh, that was demonstrated um, in Australia, for example, with you know, wearing of masks, vaccination uptake, that as the risk, baseline risk changes, that the evidence uh, and your decision making may change over time. So I think the, cult, the most challenging aspect, I think, is I was going to say changing the culture, but um, evolving the culture so the community understands evidence more and is able to uh, ask questions and use evidence more effectively and that they understand that 
information can change and that their okay. decisions may change and that's normal for that to happen it's not um and and importantly then the media comes into that and how they communicate uh with the community uh, about evidence and how it may or may not change rather than going for the headline but that's another conversation it is and i hope that our listeners will sign up to join us at some of these upcoming events to do just that I want to thank you. I know we are at time. Thank you for spending your hour with us. You could be in a lot of places. We're grateful that that you're here. And um, also, I want to thank Engaging Evidence 2021 for creating the spot. And of course, to our our panelists for their insightful ideas and, and experience. So this adjourns today's panel. Have a great day or great evening, depending where you are, and uh, hope to connect with you all again soon.